copy of God's Word again, finally, for the last time, the first chapter of the book of Ruth. I have enjoyed the book of Ruth um, thus far. I knew I was going to enjoy us doing it. I didn't know I was going to enjoy it nearly as much as I have enjoyed uh, doing it. Um, Ruth is just a one, it's a true story, but it's just a wonderful uh, story with some, with some wonderful people in it um, who provide a wonderful window into our own hearts and our own stories. Uh, and, and what we're covering today uh, reminds me of something that a wise, wise, wise person told me one time about bitterness. Uh, bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting on somebody else to die. Um, that's what bitterness is. Um, that, that is what unforgiveness is. That is what anger is. And today we are going to view someone who is so bitter that they literally try and change their name to bitter. Um, that this is a true statement. Um, we have seen um, some, some folks who, who died because of their decisions. We have seen some folks who are going to have incredible lives because of their decisions. And today we're going to look at someone who thankfully one of their decisions is going to be completely and totally ignored. Um, so, if you will look with me at verse 19 of the first chapter of Ruth and stand with me out of the respect for the reading of God's word, we will read down through the end of the chapter. Verse 19. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the woman said, is this, and the women said, is this Naomi? But she came to them, or she, she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home empty again. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Lord, I pray as we read this today that you would uh, provide a window into our own hearts and you would expose any lingering bitterness that we have. Um, and you would show us um, just how, how much that is costing us and how, how destructive that is. And Lord, that we have in Christ, we have a cure for any bitterness that may ail us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Bitterness. Um, I, I've, I've had um, all kinds of uh, uh, fun, fun naming these first uh, three sermons uh, all under redemption story. The first one we covered, we covered Elimelech and his two sons, Malan and Killian, and we named it Famine and Faithlessness um, because they expressed their faithlessness toward God in the midst of a famine, a famine that was caused by the faithlessness of the children of Israel. Second, we've seen family and faithfulness. That Ruth chose to remain faithful, um, not just to her new Israelite family that she had married into, but also to the Israelite God. Um, that she would rather be part of the family of the children of Israel than her original family in Moab. And then finally, I was trying to come up with a way to name this one, and the best I could come up with was perceptions and pouting. Because this passage is about Naomi 
sitting in her little pity party and pouting a little bit. Um, and, and, if, and before we rush to judgment, go, oh, this is, we have, uh, raise your hand if you have never pouted when you were upset. <laughs> exactly. Okay. We all have. This is not going to be a Naomi bashing session. This is not us getting, getting mad. This is not going to be a lesson of, of Josh saying, hey, everybody, look at what Naomi did. Don't do that. Okay? We shouldn't do that. But it would be a total and complete waste of time if I just said don't do that and didn't give the reasons why Naomi was doing what she was doing. Um, perceptions and pouting. Um, Naomi views God at be, as being at fault in her situation, and she refuses to see the role she played in ending up where she was, and she refused to see God's blessings on her in the midst of it. As a result of this limited tunnel vision, refusing to see what part she played in her situation, and refusing to look at the goodness God has shown her in her situation, she gets bitter. All she sees is the bad, and none of it's her fault. She doesn't see any of the good, and therefore doesn't give God any credit for it. My life is bad. My life is horrible. I'm responsible for none of it. Poor pitiful me. That's Naomi in these few verses. So let's look at, at some of the mistakes Naomi makes here. And, and there are mistakes that maybe we can avoid if we can learn a little bit from it. So first, I want us to see that bitterness causes us to mistake God's character. And that's a pretty big mistake to make. Um, I've heard uh, a Christian philosopher say one time that the most important question in all of the universe is, is there a God? And we as Christians would say unequivocally, yes, there is a God. Then the Christian philosopher would say after that, okay, having answered that question, the second most important question is, if there is a God, if there is an all-powerful, ultimately in-charge being, we need to know what kind of a God He is. Because if, if He's a loving, merciful God, that's one thing. If He's an angry, vengeful God, that's another. Well, we have the God of the Bible. We need to know who He is. And if there's anybody, if there's any group of people in the ancient world who should have known God better than anybody else, it was the Israelites that God had revealed himself to them in a way that nobody else on earth could say God had revealed himself to. They had a special relationship with him. Now, he was just as much everybody else as God, that there were other people who talked about having other gods, but there was really only one of them. But the Israelites had a special relationship with him. They knew him better than anybody else, and Naomi was one of them, and she should have been part of that knowing God better than anyone else. Is that where we find her? Not really. Look at verse 19. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. Now who is this, that, that the two that we're talking about? You'll remember that when Naomi went out, Naomi did not go out uh, just by herself. It was Naomi and her husband Elimelech, and also her two sons, Malan and Killian. You remember their names meant sick and dying. Um, so... Her, her husband, God is king, my son's sick, my son dying. All of us went to Moab because there's a famine. So they go to Moab, Malan and Killian find them a couple of Moabite women and say, hey, let's settle down here. So they get married. Next thing you know, Elimelech is dead. 
Malin is dead, Killian is dead, Orpah, one of her children's uh, wife, decides to stay, and Ruth comes back. So the two of them returning are Naomi and Ruth, the Moabitess. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. Uh, if, if you have a different translation of the Bible, we might have a couple of different words. The ESV renders that word as stirred. In other words, when Naomi and Ruth get to the gate of the town, they immediately become the talk of the town. That everybody has noticed uh, they are back. We can speculate. We can say, why are they excited? Or are the ladies excited? Because, oh my goodness, we haven't seen Naomi in all these years. And this is, we're so glad she's back. And we are so excited she's home. Or are they excited because this is the, the next episode of the, the Naomi and Elimelech soap opera? They have something to talk about. They are the gossip of the town. I don't know. And the Bible doesn't tell us why they're excited. It doesn't give us their motivation. Based on what I know of people, it's probably some of all of the above, depending on who you're talking to. That some folks are legitimately excited she's back. Some folks are probably gossiping because she's back, especially because she's back with a Moabitess in tow. Who in the world is this? So the whole town is talking about Ruth and Naomi coming back, and they say, is this Naomi? Now, Naomi has a pretty strong reaction to being referred to by her name. In verse 20, she says, But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Now, if we remember what Naomi's name means, her name means pleasant. And, and we've seen previously, going through this book, there was probably a pretty good reason that was her name. Look at the reaction that her daughters-in-law have when she tells them to leave her. They start weeping. They're crying. They're falling all over themselves. They loved her. That Naomi seemed to have been a fairly pleasant person. You can see the excitement whenever she comes back. That Some people are probably excited because pleasant has come home. That she was adored. She was loved. If not by everybody, then at least by a great number of people. That her name is pleasant, and that seems to be the case about her personality. But she says, do not call me Naomi. Do not call me pleasant. Instead, she says, call me Mara. And I hope that most of your Bibles have a footnote. Mine has one there that at the bottom it has two words. Literally, Mara means bitter. Do not call me pleasant. Call me bitter. And I think this explains how Malin and Killian ended up with the name sick and dying. Naomi seems to put a lot of stock in what you're named. You know, if Malin and Killian were sickly, uh, children who were probably not going to make it, then they, you know, one of them pops out, name that one sick. The other one pops out, name that one dying. Why? Because that looks like who they are. So when she sees herself, she sees the situation she's in, she says, my name no longer fits. Don't call me pleasant. I'm not pleasant. My life's not pleasant. Things have not been going pleasant. Leave. Call me bitter because that's more like who I am. Isn't she just a bundle of joy? 
Call me bitter. Call me Mara. Why? Now, this is an interesting distinction. Call me bitter, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. The Almighty has testified against me down farther along. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She doesn't say, call me bitter because I'm bitter. She says, call me bitter because God is bitter towards me. That's a big difference. Now, I have a feeling there are a lot of us who would be willing to, to say, well, I'm bitter. But we'd be a little hesitant to say, I think God's bitter. Naomi doesn't even care. Naomi just says, call me bitter. Were you bitter, Naomi? No, I'm not bitter. God's bitter, and he's bitter towards me. Now, we may not verbalize it, but, but work with me here. Somewhere in our heart of hearts, have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought, God, this makes me sick. I don't get it. I go to church. I go to Sunday school. I give my tithe, I try and do right by everybody, and you let this happen to me. You let them say that about, are you serious, God, are you seriously going to let them do that to me? Are you seriously going to, this isn't fair. God, I can't, and you don't say it out loud, but you call God bitter. Or you better, no, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm perfectly fine. Are you bitter? No, I'm not bitter. God now. God's the one with the problem. Not me. She calls God bitter. Now, now let's look at the things that Naomi is most likely talking about. Okay, so again, I said this is not going to be a Naomi bashing session. But let, let's look at what's probably on her mind right now. First, there's a famine. Okay? Consider for a second the bitter irony of living in a place called the house of bread and you can't have any bread to eat. That's why they left Bethlehem in the first place. Bethlehem, house of bread. The famine. So there's a famine. That's, that's the first bad thing. So they leave the house of bread with no bread in it to go to Moab where, by the way, in our Sunday school lesson today, if, 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 you, if you read King Eglon, King Eglon was a very white kind of man. He was fat. They're starving in Israel, and Eglon's fat. They're already probably bitter enough over that, so that's probably why they went to Moab. But they get to Moab, and what happens? Elimelech dies. So first there's a famine. Then her husband dies. Then what happens? After her, son dies, or her husband dies, well, at least I've got two sons to look after the family. Well, don't speak too soon. Sick and dying, get sick and die. Her sons die. And when her sons die, she's left with her two Moabite daughter-in-laws. And you remember Moab was not looked at very, very highly in Israel. So she's getting ready to go back because she hears that there's bread back in Israel. And she tells her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, Ladies, you're young enough, you could be married again. Go back. Go back to your mother's house. Get married again. 
I pray that the Lord blesses you, each of you, in the house of your husband. And when they come, they say, no, 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 we want to go with you. What's her response? That I don't have any more sons. I don't have a husband. There's no way for me to have a son now. And even if I did have sons now, are you going to hang around and wait until you're older than childbearing age to get married to them? In other words, my future is gone. My family is over. My husband is dead. My sons are dead. My hopes of grandchildren are dead. The family line will end with me. God took my food. God took my husband. God took my sons. And God took my future. I'm bitter. That's what's going on in Naomi's mind. Now let's step out of Naomi for a second and say what's not going through. Naomi's mind. Naomi's not thinking of the fact that God chose to create her in the first place. That's a pretty neat blessing. You get to be. Second, she's not thinking about the fact that God chose her forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why is she even talking about the Lord in the first place? Because God chose Israel. God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God promised them a good land. The land which, by the way, they chose to leave. God gave them that land. She's not thinking about the fact that God brought her ancestors out of Egypt into this good land. And he didn't just do it by sending Pharaoh a letter. He did it by sending fire and darkness and the death of the firstborn and boils and frogs and flies and all, all kinds of stuff. Loc yeah, locusts. That one personally terrifies me because I see the little dried out husks of locusts on things and I imagine millions of them and it's nightmare fuel. But God, God did it with, with power and with wonders and, and he did this for them. She's not thinking about the fact that God made a covenant with her people to bless them in that land as long as they obeyed. She's not thinking about the fact that God made this promise to them. She's not thinking about the fact that God drove their enemies out of that land in order to give it to them. You're studying that in Sunday school right now. She's not thinking about the fact that God had never once ceased to abide by his word to them. But wait a minute. I thought you said there was a famine. Yes, and why did God say there was going to be a famine? You disobey, the land will not yield its fruit. We love to talk about God keeping his promises whenever it means we get good stuff. We don't like to talk about God keeping his promises whenever it says we're going to get disciplined. God did not lie. And honestly, that should give you hope. Because if God keeps his word when he's going to discipline you, God will keep his word when he's going to bless you too. But Naomi's not thinking about this. And then finally, Naomi's not thinking about the fact that she can complain because she's still alive. It's real hard to complain if you're dead. You know, the pirates had it right. Dead men tell no tales. You know, Naomi, these are things not in Naomi's mind. Naomi is so tunnel vision on what these things that have happened to her, that she is leaving out all of the evidence that God has given her about the kind of God he is. She's forgotten 
all of the good things that God has done for her and her people. She's not even factoring that into the equation of the kind of God he is. She's making statements about God's character. He's the one who's bitter towards her. He's the one who did all this. It's his fault that her current circumstances are what they are. He isn't being good. And then finally, God is being bitter towards me because he wouldn't let me be happy outside what he intended to give me. I'll say that again. God's being bitter towards me because he won't let me be happy in a way other than he intends me to be happy. Well, Naomi, I'm going to give you and your people this wonderful land. I'm going to drive everybody out of it. I'm going to bless you in this land. I'm going to protect you in this land. Thanks, God, we're leaving. Why were they surprised that the blessing of God didn't follow them into their disobedience? You know, God, God I'm, I know I'm not, I know I can't stand none of those people in that church, and I know I hadn't been there for for three, four, five years, and I know I hadn't ever served, I know I hadn't ever given, but I'm, I'm praying that, you, that, you know, you're going to, you know, I, I just got to figure out, God, how come I don't see you working in my life? Where'd you go? You leave, you cut God out of every part of your life, you reject all the things he's put in your life to bless you, and you wonder why he's not blessing you in your disobedience. And this is what Naomi did, but instead of saying, well, you know, maybe I should consider, do I have any part that I played in this? She goes, no, it's all God. He's bitter. He can't stand me. You know, I had a biblical counseling professor that said to me, he said, the most important question in any biblical counseling situation, anytime you're dealing with somebody, is do we really believe that we are sinners? Because we say that. We'll say, oh yeah, we're all sinners. But as soon as we get into a fight where we're bitter against somebody, whether it's another person, whether it's God, it immediately becomes it's all their fault. Naomi's not turning back and looking. And I'm not saying all suffering is because of something you did, okay? I'm, I'm not saying that. We live in a sinful, broken world where people make sinful, broken decisions. That, not all suffering is because of something you did. But I'm saying in Naomi's case, they picked up and they left and they went to Moab and they suffered because of it. But rather than owning that, Naomi says, no, God's bitter towards me. God's a bitter, angry God. And she's ignoring all of the good stuff that God has done for them. She's not factoring any of that in. Listen, listen to these things that, that God has to say about his own character, ways that God has proved he loves us. Listen to this, Ezekiel 18, verses 23, and then 25 and 26. 
Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Well, God's just sitting up in heaven waiting for me to make a mistake so he can drop judgment on me. No, he's not. God does not enjoy disciplining people. God does not derive any enjoyment from pouring out wrath on people. He doesn't like doing it. Listen to verse 25. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Have you ever said that? God, that's not fair. Here's what God has to say about that. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, it's because of the iniquity which he's done that he dies. You know, Elimelech, you know, he, it might have been tough in Israel, but the play, the play was not to go and move into Moab. You know, Naomi, don't be mad that you voluntarily left the land that God promised to bless you in. And you're surprised that God didn't go, oh, well, they moved. I got to just, you know, change all my promises. How about this? Malachi 1, 2 and 3. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Ever done that? God says, I love you. Well, I wish I could see how, because I really don't feel loved by God right now. Ever done that? Listen to what God has to say to them. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. That Israel, hey, you, Israel, you want to know how I've loved you? The fact that you're having this conversation with me right now should be proof that I've loved you. I didn't have to pick you. Stapleton, do you know that you could have been born in a place somewhere in the world where you could have lived your entire life and never heard the gospel? We take for granted that we sit in here and somebody's going to stand up on Sunday morning and open this book and tell you that God loved you enough that he sent his son to die for you to pay for your sins. Do you know that there are people all over the world today that are going to die having never heard that? You know why you were born somewhere where you would hear this? Because God put you here. Well, God, I sure don't feel loved. You get to hear the gospel. You get to have a group of Christians to hold you accountable and to encourage you and to teach you and to grow with you and to, and to love you and to be concerned for you. What else do you want? <laughs> I mean, God chose you. If you are a Christian, God chose you. Of course he loves you. And then the ultimate show of God's love, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. If you ever want to see whether or not God loves you, look at Calvary. It's the ultimate proof.
that sinners who didn't deserve the least blessing from God get the ultimate blessing from God. Christ's death on the cross giving us the forgiveness of sin for all who would call on Him and place their faith in Him. That's the ultimate demonstration of God's love. God's bitter toward me. No, He's not. He has blessed you unimaginably. The question is, can you see it, or are you blinding yourself to God's character because you're mad? Naomi did. Bitterness causes us to mistake God's character. Second, bitterness causes us to misjudge our circumstances. Now, I'm going to giggle a little bit at this one because it's kind of funny. You can laugh, too. God's Word's funny occasionally, even when it's serious. Verse 21, I went out full. Stop. Did you really, Naomi? I went out full. You went out because there was a famine. That's the very definition of not full. There's no food. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Really? Why did you come back? You came back home because God brought you bread. You left because you were full in the middle of a famine, and you came home empty because God gave you bread. I think she's a little confused. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? What's God really doing and is Naomi right to view her situation this way? Naomi's view, let's go back. Remember, Naomi's view of God's character has been compromised. Instead of seeing him as a good, loving, caring God, she sees him as a bitter, angry, vindictive God. So her seeing God this way colors her view of her circumstances. And instead of seeing what's actually going on in the world, she sees what she wants to see. Because she believes God is bitter, angry, and vindictive, she no longer sees the blessings of God. She sees the bad things in her life, and she colors, she's wearing these bitter-colored glasses. She says, oh, things were so good when I left. No, they weren't. You were totally and completely bereft of food. Your family was on its last leg. And you're thinking about, you're harking about all oh, the good old days, back when we were starving. And then now you've come back and you're empty. You've got nothing left except this daughter-in-law who loved you enough to leave her entire way of life, her family, all of her hopes for a future in Moab, and the fact that you came back smack in the middle of a giant barley harvest. But there's nothing good happening. Naomi can't see any of this. She says that God has testified her, or testified against her and afflicted her. In reality, what God has done is shown her mercy. God could have left her in Moab to die. He could have left her in Moab to die, just like her husband and sons. And to be fair, the death of Elimelech and her sons was just. This was not unfair of God to allow Elimelech, Malan, and Killian to die. They chose to leave the land of God's blessing. God just let them have what they wanted. 
but he brings Naomi home alive. And he does so with the intent to bless her beyond her wildest dreams. But she can't see that. She can't even fathom that because she has decided God is angry with her. Look at how different both of these following passages would be if before these people speak, they would think about what God has shown them of his character in the past. Exodus 16, 2 or 3. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the... Oh, just you know, If I could cry on command, I would be doing it right now. If only we had... Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Egypt was so good back when we were slaves, getting whipped for not making our quota of bricks and straw and mortar and being held in Pharaoh's house when they killed all our firstborn children by throwing them in the river. Those were the days. I wish we could go back to that when life was so wonderful, but instead God had to go and do all these miracles and rain fire and leave the lights on in Goshen, but shut them off everywhere else in Egypt and scare Pharaoh and part seas and do all these wonders. That was miserable. Let's get a leader and go back over this ocean that we have no idea how we're going to cross. Not thinking too much about what God's done thus far, are we? What about this next one? Numbers 14, 2 through 4. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation to them. If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. So now we're through the wilderness. We're out of Egypt. We're out of the wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. So they're, they're on the, the cusp of the promised land. And they're saying, oh, no, I know it's flowing with milk and honey and the grapes are so big that it takes a team of men to carry them back and that God managed to slay the ruler and the armies of the most powerful nation on earth. But those guys are like really tall. And we're not. And never mind the fact that God somehow let a giant group of 12 plus spies get in and not get, get, out, get in and get out and not be seen by these supposedly elite warriors bringing back a giant horde of grapes that there's no possible way you can hide it. We just don't think God can come through with this one. Think for just a second about all the things God has done before. Don't push them out of your head. Compare this to dependence on Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 9. And he said to me, this Jesus said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul, I'm not going to alter your circumstances. But there's a good reason for that. I want you to learn to depend on me. I want you to learn that my grace is sufficient. I want you to learn that you're right. You don't have the strength. And I'm not going to give you the strength. I'm going to be the strength. And you're going to need to depend on me for that. And Paul got it. 
Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The difference in a Christian response and a bitter response is that bitterness looks at God, blames Him for all of the evil, ignores all of the good. A Christian response looks at God and says, there's evil in the world that I don't know how to deal with, that I can't explain, but I know God is good. I will not compromise that for anything. And if God is good and God is for me, then God's going to have to be for me. He's going to have to be enough because I don't have it on my own. So rather than blame God, I'm going to call out to him and depend on him to get me through this so that he can get the glory and the honor. That's the difference. If you're bitter, you blame God. A Christian response is to say, God, I don't get my circumstances. I can't handle them on my own. But that, that, that ought to excite me because I know if I can't handle them on my own, that's the one situation I can be in that I know you're going to take care of it for me. The difference between the two. Bitterness causes us to misjudge our circumstances. Christian, do you have somebody that you are bitter against, that you are just... You cannot for the life of you see the good that God is pouring out on you in the midst of it because you can't get past your own bitterness. I'm going to beg you, for your sake, let it go. But Josh, they won't apologize, and they may never But you being angry and you being bitter, it sure enough isn't going to do anything about it. Let it go. Because God could be blessing your socks off and you won't even see it. You won't even know that your world is just bursting into bloom around you because you're too busy sitting in a dark room in your house being mad. Quit it. then finally bitterness causes us to miss seeing God's blessing. Verse 22, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now the first thing I want you to notice is that everybody calls Naomi on her melodrama. Nobody for the rest of the book refers to her as Mara. Christian, Sometimes one of the best things you can do, and this is just a little side application, and this one's for free. Sometimes one of the best things you can do for folks is when they're throwing a pity party, is don't indulge them. Naomi says, ah, oh, don't call me pleasant, call me better. And they say, okay, pleasant. They ignore it. Nobody calls her Mara for the rest of the book. Good for them. She's never referred to by that name the rest of the book. Second, Naomi does apparent, apparently does not see Ruth coming back with her as a blessing. She sees all of this negative. She sees all of this bad 
and have completely missed the fact that somebody loved her and her God enough to leave their entire life behind and come back and start over with her. She missed it. She had no idea what God was going to do through this Moabitess. Ruth left everything she had, everything she knew, and went to a country that would most likely hate her because she loved Naomi and she loved Naomi's God. That's a blessing. And Naomi couldn't see it. And the best way that I know to give an illustration of this in a way that you might be able to understand, some of the early church fathers called the Psalms the gymnasium of the soul because the psalms if you spend enough time in them sometimes sometimes you don't know how you're supposed to feel and the the psalms will give you a really good idea i put psalm 73 on there because uh, i i'm just going to read the whole thing and i'll just point out a couple of verses and then we'll wrap up but i thought this psalm pretty accurately summarized um, what, what I'm talking about here. That Naomi was so angry, she was so bitter, she was so frustrated with all the evil that she could not see God's blessing. She could not see God's favor. Listen to Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You ever felt like that? You're mad when you look out at people who do evil, when you look out at people who cheat and lie and scheme and their life seems to be perfect and you're trying to be obedient to God and it's tough. And you look out at people who, who, who they're, they're, they, just, they couldn't care less about God. Their life's great. Verse 4, for there are no pangs in their death, their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. They, they, they're proud of it. They wear it like jewelry. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and the tongue their tongue walks through the earth. Don't you, you know people like that? That their tongue just it moves so often it's got a life of its own. Therefore his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? God ain't going to do nothing. Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. This is all pointless. I come in here on Sunday morning, I try and live a godly life, and, and what do I get for it? And yet, look at them. I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been plagued and chastened every morning. Now, listen to verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus. If I had said, you know what, I'm going to open my mouth and I'm going to let God know how I feel about all of this. Behold, I would have been untrue to the children of your generation. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. 
You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. That sometimes when we finally get it, when we finally understand that God is not blind to our circumstances, God is not blind to the prosperity of the wicked. He is not ignorant of, of those who lie and cheat and steal to get ahead. And he's not ignorant of the obedience of his children either. When you get it, it's like your eyes open up and you're like, oh my Lord, how did I not, how did I not even see this? Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Ruth, she drew near to God. Naomi had the benefit of knowing this God personally. She was one of God's chosen people. She had the law. She, had, she, she was watching God unfold redemption history, but she was so blinded by her own bitterness, she couldn't see it. But if, if she had had the benefit of Psalm 73 at this point, she could have said, oh, but when my eyes were opened, when I stepped into your sanctuary, then I would have got it, that you are a good God, that you've never left me. You've never been ignorant of me. You've never ignored me. I've just been blinded by my own bitterness and my own anger, and it would have been wrong for me to open my mouth and say, mouth and say that because I've been mistaken about who you are, God. Stapleton, don't be mistaken about who God is. Don't be mistaken about God's character. He loved you enough to send Jesus to die for you. How dare we say, God, you're bitter with me. A bitter God doesn't send his son to die for your sins. If you're in here and you do know Jesus, then I invite you to take today to soak in, into your mind the cosmically revolutionary idea, the biblical truth that in Christ, God's not mad at you. That sounds silly, but I, I, I dare you, just throughout the week, just recall that fact that in Christ, God's not mad at me. We got this little dichotomy in our world. We like to say people, you know, I love them, but I don't like them all the time. You ever heard somebody say that? Here, here, here's the truth of the matter. God doesn't just love you. He likes you, too. He likes you. Hey, Michael, look at that one. I like him. Hey, Gabriel, isn't she cool? I made them. Yeah, they're stupid sometimes, but I like them. Y'all, we all know it's true. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, God loves you. But right now, there's a problem between you and him called sin. God is angry. 
The beauty is that that anger can be redirected from you to Calvary. That's what Jesus did. He took the wrath of God on himself so that you can have God's blessing and God's joy and God's love eternally. All you have to do is repent and trust him. And if you want to talk to me about that, you can come up during the, the couple verses Preston's about to leave. You can, you can uh, leave me a note on the guest card on the side of your bulletin. You can catch me at the back door. But I don't want you to leave. Um, you need to do business with God. I want you to talk to me about getting to know Jesus today. All right? I'm going to pray you need to come. You come. Father, thank you so much for another day with your people. Thank you for a chance to open your word and study it. Lord, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd give us the power to get past our bitterness, um, to get past our anger and past, anger and past our selfishness. And we, you would give us the ability to see how good you are to each and every one of us. Um, Lord, I pray <clears throat> for those that are with us today, if there's somebody that's lost, that you would call them to saving faith in you today, that they would understand that you love them and that the death of Jesus on the cross is, is the ultimate proof of that. Um, it's in his name we pray. Amen.